On today's episode, Dave interviews Paul Wilson. Paul was Leonard Smith on It's Gary Shandling Show, has appeared in numerous episodes of The Larry Sanders Show, George and Leo, and Malcolm in the Middle. He is best known for his character Paul Krappens on Cheers. Paul's a well-respected improv player and a member of the improv troupe Off the Wall, the resident company at Hollywood's The Improv for 14 years. I'm Ian Foley, and this is ADD Comedy. You know, now's your opportunity to say something about Bernadette because it's the beginning of it. <laughs> Yeah. So if you want to say <laughs> thank you, Bernadette Burkett, for that. Uh, How long have you known her? I've known I've known Bernadette since about 1980. Could have been 79. Could have been 81. But and how'd you meet her? I I was in Off the Wall. Right. Which which began you know in 1975, and I joined in 76. And for a while I was the kid. 75. Uh, so yeah. that has to be one of the longest. I think it's the longest essentially same group of actors in mm. an improv group. Right. Yeah. And that was here, right? Yeah. That was here. Yeah. Um, one of the things that got me... Actually, like, to be precise, it was on um, Fairfax. Mm-hmm. Um, well, close to Fairfax and Santa Monica, but actually at the corner of the other Norton. Right. And uh, the West Hollywood Fairfax. Norton. Yeah. As opposed to my Norton. Yes, as right. opposed to your Norton. Right. Yeah. Uh, what got me about something that I read is you, you were in the SDS? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Briefly. Students for a Democratic Society. Yeah. Uh, 1960 what? Well, uh, I was introduced to SDS. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the idea of SDS had come. They were the yippies, right? Well, no, not exactly. No, mm-hmm. no. Um, SDS, well, the yippies... Were Jerry Rubin and uh, and Abby uh, Hoffman? Yeah, Abby Hoffman. Yeah, right. Um, his name escaped me for a moment. Like like he escaped for a long time. <laughs> and changed his name to Barry something. Be good or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Or, or was that Fatty Arbuckle? <laughs> People confuse uh, Abby Hoffman and Fatty Arbuckle. They which one? Alike, which you know? one killed that woman? <laughs> but he didn't. <laughs> but he didn't. No, he was exonerated. Right. But we yeah, still but nobody knew what did. exonerated meant, so he, no. his career was ruined anyway. No, it's, uh, exonerated. I think a lot of people think, oh, I bet he misses going to Catholic church. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so so where were we? Uh, uh, we were talking about uh, SDS, oh, but we were SDS. Also talking okay, about, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I was I, I, for a long time, um, really since uh, at least 1960, when I was in junior high school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was in San Francisco. In San Francisco, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, a, uh, a subcommittee of, I don't think it was HUAC, but it was one of those oh, communist right. witch hunt committees, mm-hmm. uh, was holding hearings in San Francisco City Hall. Mm-hmm. And there were demonstrators there, uh, and they were sitting on the steps. Uh, it was in the rotunda in the Board of Supervisors chamber. Mm-hmm. And it's a very dramatic Building the dome is higher than the Capitol, and right. uh, it's all that. Any, uh, and it's got this ivory, uh, ivory. <laughs> that would be really expensive. <laughs> marble, <laughs> marble staircase. An ivory staircase. I've always been a dreamer. Uh, I can so, dream. Like, I can dream. An ivory staircase. Ivory staircase. Wow, that would be. <laughs> That would be horrifying. <laughs> yes, it certainly would. And they should be taken to Tusk for killing all those elephants. Uh, anyway, yeah, man, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a real problem with uh, elephant extinction now. And I know, yeah. right? Uh, it's, uh, it's, it, there's some things that I think, how, does that, how is it that this still exists in our world? 
the idea that you know killing ele elephants and it's something that I just don't understand. It exists more and more. Right. Right. It's thriving. And are you saying the elephant thing? Or yeah, it's well, thriving. Yeah. yeah. In spite of the fact that it's not allowed here. Right. But I think that if we can. Well, it's not. It's not allowed there either. But right. it's so hard to police such a vast area. Right. And with the resources they have available to them, that the governments have available to right. them, you know. So. Uh, uh, the, so we're going back to the marble stairs. Yeah. In so. San so. <clears throat> the committee finally lost its temper collectively. Mm -hmm. And uh, asked the police to clear, because the all you guys were, because all those people, not yeah, the I wasn't there. there. Right, I was, mm -hmm. I was, I had, I had orchestra. Uh, What'd you play? Uh, violin. Do you still? I was the concert master of my junior high school orchestra. It's not on your resume. <laughs> I know. Why would you hold that off? I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to stress it too much because I'm way out of practice. But anyway, <laughs> since junior high. <laughs> no, no, I played a lot between now uh -huh. and then. Do you have a violin? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh -huh. I actually have two. But uh, and you play at home? Uh, rarely. Uh huh. When I play, when off the wall does a show, because we do. A klezmer number, and I play violin in that. And uh, oh, so you're 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 klezmerable on the violin. Yes, yes, I'm I'm klezmer klezmer ready. Klezmer ready. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> um, all I need is an adapter. Right. A yarmulke that I put on. Got it. Yeah. Got it. The pass. The, yeah. the fake pass. No fake pass. Oh. No, I'm not orthodox. All right. Uh, Andy Goldberg is. He's the lead right. singer. But it, uh, is he really orthodox? No. Okay. No, but he wears pants. Got it. And so does Tom Tully, actually. So I would love to see these Tom Orthodox Tully Irish guys. <laughs> <laughs> <Tom Tully>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, getting back yeah, to the stairs. You could tell his mother was raped by a Cossack. <laughs> they used Whose wasn't? <laughs> yeah. Well, mine, I think, was. <laughs> well, some things are kept to themselves, you know, True even enough, with a brother, yeah. and a brother, and a brother. How many brothers? How many do you? Sit I have three sisters and a brother. Mm -hmm. But I'll, I'll finish the story about. Wait, the, uh, are the sisters okay. in San Francisco? Still in San no, my sisters all live down here now mm -hmm. in various parts, of, but all in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And uh, my brother, who's the youngest, uh, lives in Israel and has for a number of years. Oh, yeah, he's a he's a citizen mm -hmm. and a kibbutznik. Mm -hmm. and, um, he really likes it there a lot. I had a dysfunctional family, which probably strikes you as rare for somebody in the acting field. And uh, <laughs> I, do you think so? Because I talk a lot about. I've had a lot of conversations about the concept of dysfunction. Did you have a dysfunctional upbringing? Oh yeah. Upbringing. I'm talking alcoholism. And got it. Stuff. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, uh, so my brother bore the brunt of when my parents were in their worst place. Uh, and they're both drinkers. Well, my mother drank to keep up. She really wasn't. Uh, she maintained much better than my father, and I think she drank less. But she was. She was under control, and he wasn't. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I think she drank to be able to stand his drinking. So, and he was a wonderful man, but he just lost his grip, you know. Mm -hmm. What made you all move to San Francisco? I, I was born in uh, 1945 uh -huh. and conceived in April of 1945 when the war was still going right. on. And my father had a medical discharge from the army, uh, so he was on the streets. I think starting around 1943 or so. I'm not exactly sure of when that. So uh, he was actually he was pretty young. He was born in 1923, mm -hmm. so he was only you know, 18 when the war started. Uh, so anyway, um, he got out of the army and was looking for some you know way to make his fortune. He'd come from Minnesota. 
where I was actually born, although I was conceived in Los Gatos, California, mm -hmm. um, so that my mother could have her lying in with my grandmother's help and my father could continue entrepreneurial ventures, right. which he did all over the country, and we moved a lot when I was a kid. So he was somebody that would, would go, I'll try that job, and then take you all, and I'll try yeah, that job. Yeah, and he was, a, he was a free spirit. He wanted to, uh, I mean, he was really, he was a bootstraps kind of guy. He, mm -hmm. uh, you know, came from the wrong side of the tracks in Fairmont, Minnesota, which mm -hmm. was be, like around 10,000 population, and very close to the tracks, too, not right. just on the wrong side. And, uh, uh and his parents, my grandparents on that side, were really terrific people in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. But uh, so he didn't have that problem. I don't think he had a dysfunctional family, uh, but he managed to get into one. Right. Uh, but uh, anyway, he wanted to he wanted to do something on his own. He didn't want to work for somebody else. Right. He worked. So I think one of the first things he did. Uh, was uh, sell n magazine advertising, but he really wanted to get into radio, and he wanted to get into the creative side of radio. Mm -hmm. Did he so, ever do that? Well, he had a friend who uh, they would do stuff together and record on those little self-recording booth things. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't find any of the stuff he did anymore, but you know, that's that's what he that's what he would have liked to have done. Did he? When did he die? He died in 1967. Really? Yeah. So he never saw anything that you did? Oh no, he did. Uh huh. Oh yeah, because. Because I came down here, well, I had done stuff in San Francisco. I mean, I was in a group called the Pitchell Players. Right, I saw that. Which was directed by Ann Bowen. Right. And uh, Was Roger in that? He wasn't in it then, but to jump ahead a little bit, we, we moved to Los Angeles in 1974. Your family? No, uh, the Pitchell Players. Got it. Right. <laughs> uh, and Ann and Roger took over what had been the Ashgrove, which is now the Improv. Right. We were the thing in between. Right. And uh, Carl was in that, right? Carl Gottlieb. Well, no, 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 no. Edie. Well, Edie was in the Pitchell Players. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Edie McClurg. Yeah, right. That's and, how, and that's Bob McClurg from right. Mother. Right, 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 uh, right. But yeah. Bob got her in it. I remember that story. Well, she would, yeah, she would come yeah. out in, uh, 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 on vacation to San mm -hmm. Francisco, and mm -hmm. she'd come and guest with us. Right. And she always made a big hit. You know, right. she was very funny. And she, you know, she had a radio program in, in Missouri, in St. Louis. Right. I mean, in uh, Kansas City. Right. Uh, so she was polished, a polished performer, you know. So she came in with these things that she'd written uh, and or, or premises to improvise from. Mm -hmm. She usually worked with Bob. And, right, her uh, brother. They were very funny together. Very funny. There's, there's one of their pieces uh, in the movie Cracking Up. Not the Jerry Lewis movie Cracking Up, but the movie directed by Roby Gorin. Roby uh, Gorin. Roby Gorin. And uh, just about everybody who was around in comedy was in that movie. Uh, Joe Roth was one of the producers, mm -hmm, Joe mm -hmm. Roth and Neil Israel. Right. And um, so, so anyway, uh, they, they did this thing in there. So if you, it's on Netflix streaming, mm -hmm. by the way. So if you want to check it out, right. not a great movie, but there's some wonderful things. Well, the idea of seeing all those people that were here at that time, would you yeah. say? It's a time capsule. I know, but yeah. would, you, would you say at that time that that was, because uh, coming from Chicago, and doing all the work that I've done in Chicago, at the time that I was in Chicago, I yeah. felt like it was a golden age at that time. Yeah, I know what you mean. And yeah. did you, and people have asked me, did I know then that that, that was a golden age? It's like, I didn't know that. You don't usually Not, don't. No. Well, what, what ended up happening was I felt like something special is going on because I keep working. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Something special yeah. is going on because the audiences keep coming. And uh -huh. there wasn't anything, and for you, this is probably the case here, there wasn't anything like what we were doing prior to us doing what we were doing. 
there was a well there was a little bit for I'll, I'll back up a little bit first mm -hmm. though um, I felt in San Francisco with the Pitchell players in the 60s that now in retrospect was a golden age of sorts for San Francisco and for me mm -hmm. although I wasn't making any money mm -hmm. and Roger said you know you look back on this time as the best years of your life mm -hmm. You don't have any money, you don't know where the next meal's coming from, but still you look back on it that way. And he was right. But then when I came to L.A. in the middle 70s, it was like a golden age in L.A. And there had been some stuff. The committee had been here for brief runs, uh -huh. and there was a group called the um, uh, 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 Synergy Trust. Who was which, in that? Um, uh, 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 Pepe Serna was one of the people in that, I don't know and I'm trying is. to remember who the other people were. And it's so mm -hmm. long ago now. I just uh, did you were you in any groups that did uh, any any comedy albums? Uh, no, I didn't do any albums. Mm -hmm. um, but people were doing albums back then. It's just it's so interesting. Well, I was I did some, a little bit of radio work, but mm -hmm. I didn't uh, I didn't do any albums. Mm -hmm. I just except in junior high school with the with the tape recorder that he built, because <laughs> that's re really where I got into. Um, my interest in comedy because we would listen to uh, that was when you know Bob Newhart and, and Shelley Berman and, right. and Nichols and May and right. all that stuff and then the committee came to town in 62 or 63 and I went almost every night that I could you know so. what, a, what a group what what, yeah. what what did fame knock those guys out do you think no no it didn't. what was it just like individual people going well, no, what away? happened ultimately was that it was too hard to keep going wasn't really worth it mm -hmm. to keep the club open right uh, yeah, uh, at least it wasn't worth it to the money people right um, so the group broke up but they did tours for several years after that mm -hmm. and um, it was nice for us because John Brent and Chris Ross and Jim Cran and other people came over and Chris Ross was the first person I ever knew who died that was really that was really a blow how did he die well uh, his parents didn't know, but they're probably not here anymore. It, it was an it was an OD, but mm -hmm. he was he was living with Carl, mm -hmm. Gottlieb, Carl Gottlieb, and uh, uh, and uh, Carl came home and found him. Wow! Yeah, they had wow. an apartment above the strip, you know. Right, right. So uh, yeah, that was pretty much of a shock. It's amazing to me the people that 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 I I've grown up with in quotation marks that have passed on, mm -hmm. and I forgot who I was talking to about it, but. A lot of them have lived this huge life. A lot of them were very overweight people, and yet they were. I know so many actors. You know, our friend Jim Zulovic. Do you know Jim? No, he's not somebody I know. Is he a Chicago guy? He was a Chicago guy. He, he, uh -huh. he, he lived. He came out here for a bit. Uh, and um, Jay Leggett. Jay, I passed, know. Right. Uh, in fact, I had something in common with Jay mm -hmm. because I found out that he was from Tomahawk, Wisconsin. Yeah. And I did a movie in Tomahawk, Wisconsin. So I told him I'd meet him at the bar at the Alamo Motel. <laughs> Out of the blue. <laughs> a reference he'd probably never heard before. No, no, yeah. no, no. Not for such like, what? what? What's happening? What's happening? But that was a big loss for all of us. Yeah. Jay was a really big loss for he all of us. He was a sweet guy. He was really a sweet guy. Yeah. And I think that looking... Uh, I want to go back to, to what Roger Bowen said about you're going to look back on these days. Yeah. At that time, did the money, the fact that you, didn't, you weren't making money... That, was that a huge factor? There was so much more fat on the land in those days that you could, I mean, if you were at first place, if you were in a theater group and you were sort of hooked in because we were with Ann and Roger, mm -hmm. um, we got invited to a lot of parties, got a lot to eat. Mm -hmm. You could find cheap, cheap, cheap places to live in mm -hmm. San Francisco, which you can't anymore. No, no. It's incredibly expensive. It there. just, it's, it's, 
it's the second most expensive city in the in the country, I think. Is it just the second now? I think it may have passed New York. I'm not sure. It's, it is the second most condensed area, condensed right. urban area in the, in the That's country. That's certainly true. Yeah. It's got a wall that you can't go across. You know, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. But it, it is a glorious city. I love yeah. it so much. In a lot of ways, in a lot of ways. <laughs> but my problem is that I remember what it was like when I was young. And now to me, San Francisco <coughs> seems like San Francisco land. Right. You know, it's a right. lot more crowded. It's a lot more commercialized. Uh, used to be able to park places, mm -hmm. you know. No, now you're in the residential areas. There's no place to park. No, you know? no. And I, uh, were, were you around? So you're doing the, so let's, uh, we, we can, we're bouncing. I love the bouncing. Well, let me just finish one thing. Okay. So, so the cops came and they washed <laughs> all the protesters down the stairs. And it was a galvanizing moment for a lot of people. Right. And that's really what politicized me. And I started... I started doing stuff with KPFA in Berkeley right. and, um, you know, recording conferences and things. And mm -hmm. that's how, so that's how I got involved in radio in the first place. Mm -hmm. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that's what really politicized me. Um, are you still political? Yeah, but I'm but I'm not I'm not active particularly. I'm active with my lip. Right. You know. Right. And I'll I'll talk to anybody about it. But mm -hmm. uh, I. No, I don't really lay my body on the line anymore. I don't no. have any stamina anymore. Well, it's also, I mean, for me, I feel like not. there are so many, there, this, is a, this is a golden age for getting your voice out. Yeah. And I feel a golden age. It's, it's, it's I mean, it's huge right well, now. Yeah, get your voice is. out and get yeah. your point of view out. And I also think, and this is what gets me, is it's in that you can also get your voice out, you can also... You can also educate yourself about what's going on in the world, sure, and yeah. and and to be curious as to what's happening and oh, how and important that's, that honestly, is. Honestly, that's it is wonderful to be able to get so much information mm -hmm. so quickly from right. so many diverse sources, right? Because I think back to when I was in school. You know, you go to the school library, you go to the public library, and you look through the card catalog, or you go to a database right. that's printed. But you got to go someplace to do it. You can't just say, "What's that?" And there it is. You know, it doesn't mean that's necessarily authoritative, but it will lead you someplace that you can. If you're curious about it, yeah. You know, and this. And I'm really, I'm a very curious person. Mm -hmm. How is that? I, I, I know the answer to this, but uh, how has that helped you just in the work that we do? Well, you know, they talk about reference level. Mm -hmm. I, have, I have a pretty high reference level, mm -hmm. and I, and in some cases, some areas, it doesn't go very deep. Mm -hmm. But uh, but I find that's very useful in terms of just adding interest right to a to a scene right uh, yeah because I, I I mean I, I I was never a joke you know a setup joke setup joke kind of guy and I I always just like exploring stuff right and and putting as much detail into something as possible that doesn't take away from what somebody else is doing. Add, add, add a little nugget. Yeah, some physical stuff or, right. or just ideas or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. But stay in the moment while I'm doing it. But, right. you know, um, and, and I find that, you know, being able to, because people recognize those things. They recognize lines, the, the cultural know. references yeah, and the yeah. historical references. Or just, uh, yeah, yeah, cultural things mostly, but you know, like, just the objects in your, in your, in your home, you know, right? Stuff like that. Um, I've been talking a lot because uh, I teach so much, and it's it's the the notion of just looking, taking a moment to yeah. look, yeah. and how you uh, to to turn off hmm, to turn off the noise that's in your head yeah. for a moment and to be still. And I feel that's so important for my improvisation. 
yeah. the, to notice stuff. And I travel so much, and I'm able to sit and to have beginner's eyes. You know, where, where you, you you know you go to Europe and you get off the airplane, and it's like, what the hell's going yeah, on here? Yeah. And you're noticing everything. And I think what ends up happening with a lot of people is they stop looking at things. Uh huh. And when they stop looking at things, their art starts to shrivel, and they start to make the same choices over and over and over again. Yeah. Instead of inspiring themselves in some way. You know, I was a fanatic when I, when I started, way before I had the chops. A fanatic of, of not even seeing comedies so that I wouldn't unconsciously borrow something from somebody else. Mm. I wanted to be totally original. Mm -hmm. but then you realize that, A, it's impossible, and B, you're limiting yourself artificially. You're not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna do somebody else's joke, but I can step into their reality for a second. And you can also feel what the construct of that humor is. Yeah. Because you, you may not, you won't take the joke, but you know the construct, like how that joke was set up. Right. And uh, the twist, and when I say joke, I'm not talking about two guys walking to a bar. Yeah. I'm talking about the way that we look at the world. The moment or whatever you're talking about. Certainly. Right? That when something lands. Yes. Yeah. And when something lands, you go, ah. And, yeah. and, Which is what I always loved about improvisation. Because you would see stuff you know, like I would see it at the committee mm -hmm. uh, before I ever did it, see stuff that no one could ever write. Right. Because it's so dependent upon the moment and the people. Right. And the music and everything. Right. And the audience. These things just come together and sometimes hugely. Right. And also yeah. like the political climate and yeah. what happened that day and yeah. what day of the week it is. Everything. You know? right. Everything. Yeah. Everything. And, not, and, and that's the, the joy of doing any kind of theater like that is yeah. you, this show will never be the same as any this show and you can also you can you can you can make your piece about something that just happened you don't have to sit down and, and write it and rehearse it and all that stuff you can incorporate it into into what you're doing and uh, you know just as as part of your life on stage did you ever want to get to second city uh did you ever go? Did you go there? You uh, yeah, there? I did actually. When I was uh, when I was shooting the movie in Tomahawk, Wisconsin, which uh -huh. I think it was in '82, mm -hmm. the Devonsville Terror. Right, that's the one where the guy recognized you. Uh, you there's right. something that I read. I'm pointing to my computer. There's okay. something that I read where somebody goes, "You're uh, Yeah, right. I thought it was could it be Cheers? No, it's the Devonsville Terror. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. '82 um, would have been. Was that? Was that? Was Shelley Long there in '82? No, Danny was there. Danny Breen and uh, Megan and Megan uh, and Noni and Noni uh, Noni and, Newton Breen. Yep, yeah, and uh, Riley. Yeah. Uh huh. And uh, it seems to me there was somebody else there too. But anyway, George had called. George went. Yeah. Uh huh. And uh, said, "My friend Paul Wilson is coming. He's going to stop by Chicago on the way to work on this movie in Wisconsin." Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went to see a show, and it happened to be the night of the of the Lincoln Park Lagooners benefit. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I think it was an annual thing mm -hmm. at, in that time, and uh, which was a, a gay organization, right? And uh, why are you going back a long time? <laughs> oh yeah. Danny came out in a woman's bathing suit. I remember <laughs> one piece bathing suit. <laughs> He'll do anything. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so so I saw the show, and then I went up to Wisconsin and. and did the movie and it didn't mm -hmm. take very long. It was like a week and a half or mm -hmm. so. Came back to Chicago. And I did a set. Yeah. Which was a lot of fun. Yes. That was but you never fun. wanted you you've been working in you've been working in media like T V and stuff like that. You've been working in you've been you've been working a lot. 
You've worked a lot. Well, I have worked a lot. I'm not doing a lot right now. Mm -hmm. I, I've done three or four shows in the right. last couple of years. But you, you I, started, uh, what I'm saying is this, the time that you would have been at Second City, yeah. you were already working. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, not that you're not working at Second City. I was City. doing, yeah, I, when, I, when I came down to LA, I, I was very lucky because I, I ran, by act, completely accidentally ran into Howard Hessman, who I'd known in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. From, uh, of WKRP in Cincinnati. Right. right. He was in the committee. Right. And I didn't really know him, but I said hello to him. I, you know, we were acquainted. Mm -hmm. um, but he saw me coming out of a photo place on Melrose, and uh, said, "Follow me to my house." So I, he was living on Gardner at that time, Gardner mm -hmm. near Franklin. So mm -hmm. it was a really nice little craftsman house. It was a really sweet little neighborhood, you know. So anyway, I follow him up there, and, uh, and he says he's involved in this looping group. Right. Um, Who that? That's that's the background for me for for movies, right? Right, yeah, or right. A, a dialogue replacement. Dialogue, Actually, it's right. called ADR, yes. Automated Addition. Dialogue Replacement, yeah. but yeah. Um, and uh, he was working with this group that was headed by Allison Kane, who was at the time Carl Gottlieb's wife. Mm -hmm. And she had, uh, she had handled this for Jaws. Right, because Carl, Carl, Carl wrote, wrote a it, screenplay yeah. for Jaws. Yeah, yeah. Right. so um, I missed that. I just missed that. But but Howard got me into this group, and I, I'd known Carl, and actually I talked to Allison on the phone in San Francisco, who was telling me that they were predicting that Jaws would gross a hundred million dollars, and I said, sure, you know. <laughs> God knows how much it's grossed by now, but anyway, <laughs> it's on. It's I mean, it's on did I say hundred million or hundred thousand. Uh, I meant a hundred million, whatever I said. You said a hundred million. Okay, you good. said hundred million. All right. Um, it is one of the top. It is on everybody's top ten list of great movies. Yeah, yeah. And you look at somebody like Carl, and you go, "Look at all that he has done." Yeah. We're, I mean, oh, and he's done a lot of stuff we don't know about too. A lot of uncredited uh, script doctor work right. and stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, even what he's credited with, you go, yeah. "Jaws, The Jerk." Oh yeah. Uh -huh. You know, uh, but he also worked on the Smothers Brothers show. Yeah. Um, Which I loved. I never, I never cared that much for for laughing. I recognized mm -hmm. there were talented people on the show, but I just didn't like the format. Right. But right. I loved the sketches they did on uh, on Smothers. Oh, some of them were really crazy and funny. Right, and also they were uh, subversive. Yeah, they were much more political than Lampen. exactly. It's not really political at all. Well, for me, I think that that to be political is just such an important thing in my work. I just cannot be political, and I don't understand how people cannot be political. Yeah, I know. Well, I. I I always like to do stuff that's that's based on what's going on in the world. Right. So we have to like panel things and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you've also worked. I mean, some of the people that you've worked uh, to to work on uh, it's Gary Shandling show. Yeah. Like yeah. like that. That was of its time too. Very much so. Yeah. And the interaction that seemed like a political show to me somehow. It it was in a way. It was certainly it was certainly a. Um, Aesthetically, um, political show, but it also looked yeah. at the talk show, the talk show world in a way that had never been looked at before. Well, Larry Sanders did. I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. I meant Larry Sanders, but I, but I did. I, I was uh, on, yes. on this Gary Shandling show yeah. too. I was actually yeah. a regular on that show. But right, that's what I meant. Yeah, I no, meant Larry Sanders. Show. Yeah, absolutely, mm -hmm. and uh, that was a brilliant show, and sort of laid the groundwork for every other talk show. Satire, absolutely, know. and it did it so well. Yeah, what was the feeling on? Was because well, he was he was the real guy, right? But he didn't want to do that. I mean, he was 
after I guess after um, uh, Joan Rivers fell through, mm -hmm. uh, he was Johnny Carson's anointed successor. But but he just didn't want to do that, right? You know, and, right. Uh, it seems like it's a, when I look at what what's happening with Colbert now, I really wonder how, what that's like. Yeah. But he's actually going from that. Those two shows are essentially the same kind of format. I mean, not the same format, but but you're a host, and there's unless he it's does presentational. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think also uh, the Larry Sanders show um, is pretty much. Seinfeld, in a way, that you take this one character. Yeah, except all, it came first. Yes, exactly. What yeah, I'm saying is right. that the Seinfeld, you look at, I mean, people have been. <laughs> we had a little exchange at the improv because Off the Wall was the uh, house group at the improv from 1980 to 1994. Mm -hmm. And uh, when when uh, it's Gary Shandling's show was not Larry 1980 Sanders. to what? Um, 19, what 1980 to 1994. 14 years. 14 years, yeah. 14 years. Yeah. Monday nights. Pretty great. Yeah, it was great because yeah. for one thing, we could pay the piano player and didn't have to take the money out of our own pockets. Right. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that's weird that, that the only people that don't, you know, historically don't get paid are the, uh, the people on stage. Yeah, but you and know, I think I, it, it bothered me for a while um, having to pay to perform, in effect. Mm -hmm. uh, but I thought, you know, I don't want to my girlfriend, Chris Ann. Oh, this is Paul. Hi. Nice Hi. to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hi. Hi. Bye. Bye. Um, but that's they can't afford to do showcase stuff it's not a showcase for them right. it's a gig right? and it's a gig that they had to give up some other gig to do right. probably if right. they're at all successful so they really need to be paid Yeah, if you want to get anyone who's good but know. I also think that we should get paid too Oh, I agree. But right. the thing is, how? <laughs> well, one of the things is that, that we've never said we want to get paid, so nobody ever figure out how. I think the majority of actors say, uh, the majority of people who are doing improv yeah. say, you know what, I'll do it for free. But what if, you, what if a bunch of improv, improv, improvisers said, we want to get paid? Someone would figure out how to get a good group paid. But I think that people don't even think about it. Well, the, the part of it is... If it's an improvisational group, it's a little unwieldy. It's not like a two-hander with a you know like a one-act play or a you know it's and it's different every night. So, but if they're a strong group, no, no, I agree. Mm -hmm. I mean, I agree that that should be right. the way it works, and mm -hmm. it works in Chicago, and it, I guess it works in Toronto uh, at at the Second City. Yeah. I'm talking about this little group that's going to play at the bar. No, I got you. You know, because yeah. at Second City, actually, Second City doesn't consider themselves an improv theater. Okay, wait, there's they're a theater. Yeah, right. Which I think it's really interesting that people go, yeah, it's, an, it's a comedy club. It's not. It's a theater. Well, I think that was sort of the way the committee looked at it too. I mean, it winds up being a nightclub. Right. It's a cabaret. Yes. Yes. Which is a nice word for nightclub. But it's also, I think that if you played a cabaret, if you said we're playing the cabaret, I'm thinking you're going to get paid. And I agree. And in fact, when we worked at the Improv, we did. I think we got um, $150. We didn't just get what we paid the piano. Right. I know. We got what a comic would have gotten for the equivalent amount of time, one comic. Right. Which uh, now is uh, nothing. Those oh, guys yeah, yeah. get nothing. Right. Have you done stand-up? <laughs> I tried once early on. I went on at the, the original room of the comedy store. Mm -hmm. Um, with Bob McClurg, we went up there together, and I did a monologue that I had done in our show. Mm -hmm. 
and it, it just bombed completely because it wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't used to working one on one with. Uh, I wasn't talking to the people in the audience. Well, you, when you, I think that. I couldn't see them in the first place. Right. Dark, you know. But. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that it's such a different beast. Yeah. And it made me very uncomfortable. I really like having other people up there on stage with me. How did you learn to do? How did you? How did you learn? How did you learn improv? How did you learn it? Uh, well, I was always a wise guy, you uh -huh. know, um, and a and a punster, which mm -hmm. is the thing I have to control when I'm on stage. I don't control it very much when I'm off stage. Well, you did it here. I, don't I know. I said uh, uh, it was it was a uh, tusk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so far, it's only been one. So far, so I'm pretty good. Time. And I have to say, when I went, you know, I stopped going to church for a little while when I was a kid. I was probably around seven or eight, and then I started going again. And um, we met the minister at the front door, and he said, "Hi, Paul. Are you still making those puns?" So, you know, it's something that it's involuntary. Right. It's voluntary to speak them, but they just come into my head like on a billboard, you know. It's in, it, but that's the way I love the way that all of our brains work. Well, I love words, for one thing. I right. love roots, and I right. love connections between words. And Have you ever thought about this? How did the word, like, arm come up? Like, how did arm come up? And I think, at one time, was there a guy named Arm? And it's like, I'm going to name this after I don't know, because it means poor in German. Oh. Yeah. Ich bin Arm. Ich bin sehr Arm. Right? Yeah. <sighs> So uh, with arms for the poor. Arms for arms, the poor. I have no idea. Arms for the poor. Because there are a lot of false. Uh, but what did the grunt gonna... become? The word house. You, yeah. And, well, and if it's based, well, on... I'm sure I can guarantee that word came from Norse. <clears throat> right, but, but even uh, in Norse, did yeah. somebody go <clears throat> and went like, how did probably uh, the, how the did first... they associate sounds with meanings? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And no one's written uh -huh. that book. Right. Yeah. And then that turns <laughs> yeah. into you well, know. well, maybe it came, yeah, maybe it came from the body language. You know, we really right. are ascribing uh, meanings to body language and then a sound. I bet that's what happened. Like someone yeah. would would hunch over and go, yeah. and it's like, uh, or no. Yeah. But anyway, and you always like the equivalent of "Are you all right?" Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so you're gonna, you're going to chalk this whole thing. Maybe up. they started with names. But but because names. Said, Where is so and so? Well, you got to. Yeah, you, you know what? You know what they're talking about. Then we got to go. How do you get to where is so ah, well, and see, so? Yeah. So I'm just bringing it all. And that's in English, which, right? Which probably wasn't the first language I'm, on earth. Well, you don't know that. It's I bet true. a lot of people here think that English was the first language and everything. Well, they think spun it's the off. only language that's worth speaking. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> well, it is. I have to say, the most inclusive language. Uh, it does. You know. It does suck all the other words, uh, other yeah, languages yeah. into it. It does suck. Which all makes them. it sort of cool. Yeah, and I think it accounts for the fact that it's, of course, the British Empire helped too, but accounts for the fact that it is currently the lingua franca. Although Chinese will probably. And it's be. it's interesting that English is is an Italian word, the lingua franca. Yeah. Right? Right. Yeah, we've already taken lingua franca. Thank you. And it means French language, too, in <laughs> Italian. <laughs> so, <Right>. anyway. <laughs> uh, oh, these people. Um, wait, yeah. I'm going to go back to the priest okay. uh, who said, yeah, was that the guy that made you go, I could do this? <laughs> no. You know what I mean? No. Because my I, in fact, I didn't think I could do this for many years. Mm -hmm. um, when I was... In, in junior high school, I was on the stage crew. I always loved theater and mm -hmm. stuff. First show I ever saw was Sunrise at Campobello. Mm -hmm. First big the show. The FDR. Yeah. Yeah. With Ralph Bellamy. Yeah, the hysterical FDR show. What well, a laugh riot. But it was but it was just a wonderful show. It was magical for a kid who'd never mm -hmm. seen 
That was the first really show you saw. actors on stage. Right. Yeah. And you saw it with... Um, Ralph Bellamy. You saw it with Ralph Bellamy. Yeah, it was the road show in San Francisco, yeah. But it was, but he was doing the tour. And, uh, and the I'm next sorry, I want to take a minute just to think about watch, seeing Ralph Bellamy yeah, I know, on stage. I know, I you know. And then it was later on, it was so strange when I started watching old movies to see him play buffoons. And, you right. Know, and I said, the, the extra guy, the guy who's out of it, who doesn't have a clue, you know, <laughs> when he was so... Brilliant. But you, then you go, and I, probably his last big role was in Training Places? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, he Later on, yeah. Later on, he did stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, he was great. But there in was, movie. in the third, in the screwball comedy era, he played a lot of uh, clueless individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you saw that, and that inspired you? It, probably to get involved with it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I also remember I saw. Um, as a kid, I saw Madame Butterfly at the San Francisco Opera. Mm -hmm. So all of these experiences, uh, and I wasn't a particularly happy kid, so all these things were like another world that I wanted to join. Mm -hmm. But I didn't see myself as a performer. I mm -hmm. played the violin. Um, and that seemed to be sort of, I would always get so terribly nervous when I did a recital that I that my fingers would sweat and they'd slide all over the fingerboard and everything and I just never it was that caused too much anxiety for me cuz there's there's too much there's too much technique involved right and I and I just you couldn't surrender to the technique I I couldn't at least at the level of commitment that right. I had at the time I just didn't practice enough to make it second nature and maybe right. I wouldn't have been able to anyway um, who like, knows right. but uh, I mean I was very musical mm -hmm. but anyway uh, junior high school stage crew and then in high school, I was on the sound crew, the PA crew. We also ran the uh, hygiene films in the, on the Bell and Howell 16 <laughs> right, millimeter projector. Right, right. But we also had an arc projector in the auditorium. And at the end of every school year, we would show Seven Brides for Seven Brothers because <laughs> they owned a print. <laughs> we got pretty sick of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. But we didn't actually watch it, you know, right. to, be, to be quite fair. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know. Anyway, that's that's really what did it, and then we did a show, but but I was with a group of people. My my friends were a all really good students or really bright and didn't have to study mm -hmm. uh, and funny. Right. Um, did you consider yourself funny? We could make we could make each other laugh. I knew that. Did you consider yourself funny? Uh, as part of this group. Mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't have any. I didn't have any chops. Right. But, you know. Uh, but but we were we were onto the Goon Show right and the British Goon Show and that had started on on KPFA in Berkeley in uh -huh. the fifties right the late fifties so Peter Sellers Peter Sellers Spike Milligan Harry Seacombe right and um, uh, and why can't I remember the well those were the big three the Michael yeah. Benteen was uh, was in it earlier on and then left but uh, yeah it was just a wonderful eye opening kind of thing I'd never heard before you know? it's crazy that when like Monty Python that was Monty Python for me where you go yeah. Right. What? How? What? This is possible because this is the way that we fuck around uh, when we're together. Yeah. And someone's making a living at it. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. Well, talk about right place and right time. It was just a few years after the war. You had all these guys who'd been involved with theatricals in the service. Mm -hmm. Plus, they were English. Right. Plus, they had a government-operated broadcasting system. Right. BBC. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have to worry about getting sponsors. Right. Right. All that stuff, you know, right. and they had a chance to, and they had, they had godfathers in the organization, mm -hmm. you know, so they were able to work on it long enough to get it together and start it and have people be patient for it to catch on, right. you know. 
Um, right. That's so interesting because yeah. when you're able to have a greenhouse and harvest this and and put it in an incubator and give it everything that it needs, yeah. without giving, they, but they but the the British weren't doing that specifically for the Goon Squad. They were Goon Squad Goon <laughs> Goon Show Goon Show. Yeah, I'm thinking Elvis Costello's song of oh, the oh. Goon Show. But they were doing it for arts art broadcast art in general. Yeah, although that. I would say that well, and they did other comedy shows right. too, but there was no comedy show that was like the Goon Show. Right. Um, and uh, and they and I think a lot of their programming, if uh, if the parodies in Monty Python are accurate, well, were very boring documentaries and stuff that was supposed to improve you. And I think that includes a lot of the cultural events too, you know. But right. But on the other hand, they had several channels, at least in radio, mm -hmm. you know. So there was always something. But they remember they they would make fun of the BBC said program all the yes. time, you know. So they, uh, next time BBC yes. seven, <laughs> right, 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 right. I, but I, I look at any opportunity where where artists can. One of the things about Second City was someone said, "Here you have a job." He went, "What? Here's a director. We'll, we'll produce it, and go." And you go, "Well, what do I? How do I? What? Because <laughs> we're not used to it." Yeah, yeah. Well, I have to say that I am, I mean, I'm, I'm a writer and I have a partner and we're working on something right now. Mm -hmm. We've worked on a bunch of things before and actually made a little money. Mm -hmm. uh, but as an actor, I'm not really a self-starter. I like to be hired. Right. Or to be part of a group. What is What self-starter means? A call Go me, out and do something. Got it. Yeah. I'm, right. not a, I'm not a producer. I think a lot of actors don't, see, and I'm not saying you, I'm just thinking about this idea, the idea of... Uh, the idea of being a small a small businessman, yeah, the yeah. fact that we are that's what we are in effect, yeah, yeah, and I think that a lot of people look at being an actor. I was talking to a woman in I was just in Salt Lake City, and I was talking to this woman in Salt Lake City who said, I, "Where should I go? I want to be discovered." I'm like, whoa, all right, uh, whoa, all right, okay, all right. First off, it's really important to know that you're you're a business. You are a business. Yeah, yeah. And you've got a partner now, and you, you've written stuff and sold that, yeah. and you've made money on that. Yeah. And you become less of a victim when you... Oh, you know, I long, I long past um, stopped feeling like a victim because I've been fortunate enough to make my living. I've never had to do anything else since I moved to here in the middle 70s. And uh, and I have to say that before that, you're getting an idea of the fact that I wasn't particularly focused, on, certainly not on a career. Mm -hmm. I loved comedy, but that's about how far it went, you know. And I had no plan. Um, but I came to Los Angeles the first time because the Pitchell players moved to Los Angeles. Right. But nothing really happened for me at that point. Only one member of the group got some work out of it. And, um, you know, so most of us went back to San Francisco, which I did in 75. Came here in '74, left in '75, came back in '76. But since I came back, I, for though I did some radio sessions up there for McDonald's, mm -hmm. um, and that paid for my first year down here. I mm -hmm. mean, I think in 1976 I made over ten thousand dollars. Wow! Yeah, and my rent was one hundred eighty dollars a month. I'm uh. sorry, it was ninety dollars a month. It was a half of one hundred eighty. Bob McClurg and I were roommates, and um, so then I got into looping. Right. So I had something to carry me over until I started working. And when I got involved with Off the Wall, which was pretty quickly, the reason they were, 
I'd know, I'd known the Dee Marcus, who was the director of Off the Wall, uh, and she was part of a group called the Illegitimate Theater in Palo Alto. Okay. So we were acquainted already. So I went by, and a couple people were leaving, so I got invited to join the group. Mm-hmm. Because uh, Dee knew me, and she knew that I'd been doing it. And also another member of the Pitchell Players was in the group already. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that led, because the people who left, left to get writing jobs, um, I got hired by those guys. Right. And then it just, you know, you get the first job, and then the next job is a little bit easier, and then the next job is a little bit easier. To get. You're saying easier to get and easier to get. But you get more auditions, for one thing. You get more opportunities. And then later on, you actually get offers. Right. uh, I'm sort of past the offer stage now, but occasionally I'll get one, you know. Yeah. But you never never considered yourself a victim. Not a victim, but you never said... I complained a lot, and I also would say, you know, well, the way casting directors are and the way this one is and the right. way that one is, you know, but then I realized that that was, you know... I mean, obviously, you're never you're never going to like everybody, and you're never going to think everything's fair, but the fact is it boils down to you. Right. And they don't have an ax to grind. They no. want to cast the show. Right. You know? And I think a lot of people go in... Uh, but this is true of so many things, where you, if you go in saying, they're my enemy, <laughs> it's not going to be good for anything. You might you, defeat them, but... <laughs> right, right. You might Why win the you, battle. That would be an easy defeat, to, be, to easily defeat them. <laughs> right, I won. <laughs> I, I didn't get the job, but I won the uh, battle. Uh, but I think yeah. a lot of people don't... You know, th- that, that feeling... I, when people come to L.A., I want to tell them, lose your expectations and know that any audition, those people are calling you and they, they want you to have the job. Absolutely. And in fact, when I, when I actually got to know some casting directors on a personal level, uh, just incidentally, I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't say I'm going to go and get to know that person, but just running in, into them in other situations and sitting next to them and just shooting. Right. The, what can we say? Right. We can say shit? Yeah, well, I okay, said fuck. Right. This, I, I, I got to tell you. Okay, it, shit, it's been, fuck. Okay. Right. It's yeah. been, I think I didn't say fuck until like 30 minutes into it, which, and I usually say it right off the bat. Just to I get just it, say, clear the air? Well, clear the air, but no, <laughs> this is uh, like, yeah, it was, it's all unexpurgated. Uh, which again goes back to you can't go to church anymore because you've been unexpurgated. Um, but the that idea of being the victim and it's just it's a boring it's a boring conversation. It's boring, but uh, but I think people have a tendency to look for reasons outside themselves why it's not happening for them. But uh, I think it's I mean I, I, there may be some people who are just so incredibly charismatic and somewhat talented mm-hmm. and and appear confident right uh who can who can actually get a lot of work right um you don't necessarily like their work all that much but you know uh and then there are other people who are really really terrific Mm -hmm. but they they step on themselves i was gonna say shoot themselves in the foot oh but i was gonna i I guess i I didn't really make my point even to myself so i don't understand what i'm saying what i meant was that people who are so great that doesn't matter what kind of jerks they are Mm -hmm. you know and there are examples of people like that. The thing is, once they start to fade, then everybody is desperate for them to go all the way to the bottom because <laughs> they hated working with them the whole time, but they had to be nice, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> There's nothing worse than that obligatory politeness and, ni- and you know, it's like, if you start to feel that, then you're doing something wrong. You know? I also think that you have to watch out what you say here to people because you never know what, where they're going to go. Oh, true, yeah. Yeah, especially you don't want to insult somebody if no. and if they turn out to be the boss of the company the next uh, when you turn around. I know. I used to be surprised at uh, the people that that I know that have had amazing success, and you go, what? 
that guy? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah. That guy. Yeah. That guy. And I'm also surprised at people who uh, didn't make it that you thought he was going to make it. So you never know. Yeah. It's true. It's true. And because it, because it is, because you are a business. Right. You're not just a person. You're not just an artist. You're, you're a business. And you, can, and you can be a bad business person. You and know. you also have to, it's what you're talking about, like know a lot of, about a lot of stuff. And I, look, I go back to um, Carl Gottlieb and I look at, look at ev- all the stuff that he has written. And yeah. we talk about stuff that we don't even know that he's done. Yeah. So it's the idea of I'm going to do that and not to pigeonhole yourself yeah. and say, I'm that kind of an actor or I'm that kind of an actor, what it's going mm-hmm. to be. I'm that kind of an artist. I'm not, I'm not that kind of an artist. Because it's a weird thing to say. It's sort of like saying, I want that kind of job, but I don't want that kind of job. I will take that kind of yeah. money, but I won't take yeah. that kind yeah. of yeah. money. Well, I, I long ago learned to, that unless something disgusted me completely, uh, all other things being equal, say yes, even if it right. doesn't seem to be, you know. Because I found that most of the big things that have happened in my career have come out of left field. Mm-hmm. Just I didn't have any idea that... Uh, I mean, this Gary Shandling show, Gary called me up. He'd been doing a show called Elephant Parts with, um, you know, the, the guy from the Monkees. Uh, oh, Mike Nesmith. Uh, Mike Nesmith? Yes, Mike Nesmith. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, he, he wanted somebody to do a sketch with him on the show, but I wasn't available mm-hmm. to do that. But then he was doing this special called Gary Shandling's 25th Anniversary Special, which was a mock Carson's 25th Anniversary. Kind was of it on HBO or what was it on? It was on Showtime. Showtime. And uh, he asked me to come in and read for the part of this clown who was, you know, like a disappointed clown or something. And I went in, and then he said, you know, I'd like to have you try some. Are there any other kind of clowns? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I trust Gary that the clown would have had something interesting. Got it. To to do, because I think Gary is a comic genius. So, uh, uh, and I felt that way even before I ever met him or ever got paid by him. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but... uh, he said, why don't you try this? Why don't you try being the, uh, the sidekick? So I wound up as the, uh, in the Jeffrey Tambor role in this, in this show. And it was great fun because there were clips from all, you know, futs to look like different eras with, uh, with great. I, met, I mean, I met Senior Wences. Ah, Senior Wences. And I met, uh, oh, geez, what's his name? Uh, 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 Mr. Cub. Ernie Banks. Ernie Banks. I met Ernie Banks. He didn't make the cut, but... Ernie Banks didn't make the cut. It's, Ernie Banks didn't make the but, cut. And I don't know why, but I'll tell you what the joke was. The uh-huh. joke was that Gary's father had given him an autograph, a baseball autograph by Ernie Banks. I have and, one. And Gary came from Chicago originally, and then mm-hmm. they moved to Phoenix because his brother had cystic fibrosis. So, so anyway, the bit was that, that Gary shows him the autograph baseball, and he says, that's not my signature. <laughs> 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 and maybe oh, and Ro- I mean, Rosemarie was on the show too. Oh, she's still around. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And now she's. How was it now, to work with Rosemarie? As they say, bless her heart. Right. She seemed to me the angriest person who ever let her anger show so much in every job she ever did. Maybe because of the way she got started, you know. Uh, vaudeville. No. She got started as a child star, singing and dancing. Right. And I think she was probably treated rather cruelly. Right. And uh, it left a bad taste in her mouth. Well, what a snarky character, you know? Yeah. I mean, just uh, on the Dick Van Dyke show. Oh, yeah, yeah. Rosemary. Yeah. And she wasn't happy about the bit she was doing. So maybe that's what happened with Ernie Banks. Maybe he decided he didn't want to do it. Uh-huh. Maybe he took himself out. Got it. But uh, 
Rosemary did it. She she bit the bullet and, and did um, with Donny Osmond a little bit of uh, country, a little bit of rock and roll. Sure, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. I was on the uh, Donny and Marie show where yeah. uh, I, they they dressed me up. Half of me was of country and half of me was rock and roll. It was one of the stupidest things I've ever done. And you, and you look at all the dumb things that you, I wish, I, I wonder if I could get, find that somewhere. But you look at all the dumb things that we've done. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty phenomenal. Did you ever share a bill with uh, topless ping pong and uh, strip poker? No. The Pitchell players did in North Beach back in 66. <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah. yeah. Oh my God! I've dressed up in funny suits and. Uh... Um, I did. Uh, you know Mark DiCarlo? I'm sorry, who? Mark DiCarlo. Uh, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. So Mark DiCarlo had a show. I think it was like uh, oh, 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 Monty Hall. Uh, what was his show? Uh, was uh, you make? Let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. Yeah, right. So, Mark was yeah. the host of Let's Make a Deal, uh-huh. and um, you know he'd go out in the audience and. Um, right. Well, this is, I haven't thought about this in a really long time. He'd go <laughs> in the audience and he would ask people, "What the, you know? I'll give you this much money if you have something in your purse." And uh, he went up to the woman in front of me. So I was in the audience, yeah. uh, plant. Yeah. I was in the audience, and he went up to the woman that was sitting right in front of me, and she, he said, "Don't look around. Don't look behind you. But do you think the guy behind you has something in his pants?" And she goes. Uh, I don't know for how much, and you know, it's one hundred fifty dollars. And she goes, "I think he has something in his pants." And then they turn the camera at me, and I reach into my pants and I pull out a rubber chicken, and uh-huh. I go, "I got a chicken in my pants! I got a chicken in my pants!" And I run down and I run through the whole <laughs> set, w- waving this rubber chicken over my head, and I walk off and I'm like, "Thank God, no one saw that! Thank God, no one saw that!" And four of my Second City friends, who are all on TV shows in that studio, going. Oh, that was great. Go, I got a chicken in my pants. I oh, bet your commitment was 100%. I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. DiCarlo. But it's, again, going back to, you don't, DiCarlo works all the time, and he has hired me to do stuff yeah. all the time. Uh-huh. And you never know what you're going to do. You never know what you're going to get. You never know what your career is going to be like. I've never worked for Mark, but he had this sort of group of people that were getting together to, to brainstorm stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just sort of drifted away. I don't know. I just uh, well. What about that? I mean, Mark always works. Yeah. Well, that's you know. I have to say, he's a package too. Yeah. You know, he's a he's a good looking guy. He's right. very polished. Right. He's, uh, he can do that. He can think on his feet rapidly. He can talk when he doesn't have anything to say. He can do all those. He has all those skills. He's an MC. In addition to his other virtues, you know. Right. His intelligence and his curiosity and all that stuff. You know? And he and he's one of those guys that you look and you go, I want to party with that guy. <laughs> you know, I want to drink with that guy. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, he he has he has now he has a, a, po- a huge podcast that he does. Yeah, it's really great. I'll have to listen to it. Um, it's called the Fork in the Road. Nothing on the radio. I'm interested in much more. You do listen to the radio. Or you don't. Well, I do listen to radio occasionally, but mm-hmm. there, most of the th- there's not a lot of stuff on it that I you know that I care about. There, a lot of the people that I used to listen to a lot are no longer on the air. For one thing, who? Well. Not that they were the greatest thing in the world, but I found them entertaining. Randy Rhodes, right, and uh, I liked Ron Reagan's show, right, and there was uh, Mr. KBC, right. But it's uh, also Michael Jackson. I used to listen to Michael Jackson, uh-huh. um, but then I discovered. See, about that time, KCRW was beefing up their signal, right, and, 
adding to their programming. So they had a whole bunch of really great shows, and I started listening to uh, to NPR instead of uh, AM. But, right. Because uh, I used to listen to these Chef Mike Roy, you know, and and his sidekick um, Dennis, not Dennis Bracken, but which was the famous the the Bracken who was in the. Ooh. I think that might have been. Mm. Well, anyway. He was in uh, um, uh, one of those uh, Preston Sturgis movies. Uh, oh, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> was it Hail the Conquering Heroes? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah you know yeah, what I'm yeah. talking about. Preston His brother uh-huh. was the side. Got it. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Stuff has changed so much as being inspired by the listening to the radio. Like People listen to the radio. I'm like, what? What? We're listening to the radio? They mostly listen to the radio in their cars. Right. But I also listen to my podcast in the car and, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. going through the speakers. And I think so much shit has changed. The, yeah. the, how people make money has changed. And when I hear about people go, I, you know what, um, I'm just not getting out enough. Like, then do something. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Um, it's just that I, <laughs> my pr- at this point now, maybe if I were younger, and I, and I suppose I actually did initiate more stuff when I was younger. I'm just sort of, I'm getting on. And, oh, of course. You know, and I have a lot of other interests that, uh, I mean, I just for one thing we were talking about, all the stuff that's available. Wait, this fell off. Oh. Alright. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. It's alright. Uh, all this, yeah, keep going though. I think I can do this. Did that just happen? Yeah, it just happened. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Alright. That's right. Um, there is so much available that uh, I just, I wallow in it. You know, there are a whole bunch of websites that I follow, aggregating right. websites and, right. and the New York Times. And What's the aggregating website? Uh, there's one called Truth Out. There's another one called Common Dreams. There's. Uh, Have you done Zeit? No, I haven't. It's. I think it's an app. It's an app that. That's yeah. an aggregate app that just oh, gives me so, so much information, yeah. so much political information, and yeah. you get addicted to it. I know that Truth Dig has a lot of links, mm-hmm. and uh, that's another one of them that I. And I I used to look at the Huffington Post a lot, but now it's become so loaded with crap it's just loaded with crap yeah it's loaded with crap and I and 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 it's also they're trying too hard yeah well they're trying her idea which I guess AOL made possible right was to compete with the full service newspaper right to create an online full service newspaper with all the crap (laughs) that regular newspapers have right Uh, and well a lot of the crap being advertising uh, but there, w- there was one thing that happens on when you're looking at stuff online that didn't happen in the newspaper, and that's if you click something that looks real, and you wind up looking at an ad, that just really burns me up. That really burns me, too. Yeah. Or something where you go, that's news, and, it, and you go, what? And it's a satirical website that... It's a satirical... We go, oh, you get so angry what, about the it. the Onion, that place? And, no, but oh. it's, it's the Onion's idiot cousin yeah. doing something where, where they're saying something but there's no twist on it right and yeah. for, for those of us who are in this business uh, you gotta put if there's no twist on it it just looks dumb and you're trying and it looks like a lie yeah yeah do you listen to Jimmy Dore no he's got a good podcast D-O-R-E uh-huh. Jimmy Dore show he's very political mm-hmm. and uh, he right now he's got uh, um so I can't remember names anymore. Uh, doesn't matter. The guy who hosts the movies on TCM now. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, you know, the yeah. Young, younger guy. Yeah. Uh, and, and several other people, including one of the guys from uh, um, Mystery Science Theater. Right. The uh, main guy or no? Uh, Not the main Frank guy. Frank Conniff is his name. Okay. Um, I didn't follow that show, but the guy's very funny. And uh, he lives in New York, and he's on there by you know phone link, basically. But 
he does a lot of topical stuff, and there's also a brilliant, um, imp I would call an impressionist, but he's really much more than that, because he knows these people, and he knows, it's more like the difference between David Fry and uh, Rich Little, you right. know. Um, you can explore stuff. Well, are you talking about Phil Hendry's? Uh, no, not Phil Henry. This guy is, is Mike uh, Mike McRae or something like mm -hmm. that. Not Mike McRae, but something similar to that. Mm -hmm. Mike McSomething, mm -hmm. uh, who does all these different characters. You know, I mean, I said the, the current one is doing Rick Perry. Mm -hmm. uh, he does Obama. He does. Uh, and he's but he does political. A Bill O'Reilly. Mm -hmm. I mean, and they all really sound like those people, and and they all are true to those people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and it's and it is very political. Yeah. Again, going back to the idea of we live in a time where if you have a skill, get it out there. Yeah, true. Yeah, because you really, you really need to, you need to exploit yourself. Right. You know, and it's so easy because there are plenty of people who who are willing to use your services for nothing. Right. You need to have the you need to have the belief in yourself to use the you know self esteem buzzword. That works for me. Yeah. Um, because I remember I, I got a gig writing patter for a for a singing group in San Francisco way, way back. And uh, I asked for $100, and I found out they would have been willing to pay $500. And, and that would have been a big deal in 1969. <laughs> you right. Know? So anyway, uh, you just got to, and you've got to take a chance, actually. You've got to, you've always got to take a chance. Right. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to put it out there. And maybe they won't go for it, but... You at least got to try. And the worst thing that could happen is someone says no. Yeah. All right. And, and they're not going to hate you for trying. No. Let's stop there. That's great. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to ADD Comedy. For Dave Rosowski, I'm Ian Foley. For more information on Dave, you can go to his website at www.davidrosowski.com or follow Dave on Twitter at drosowski.